Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes, David French, and this week, defined by excellence, Chris Steyerwalt, contributor to the Dispatch at AEI. You may know him from, again, just his general excellence. We've got plenty to talk about today. We'll start with supply chain issues, infrastructure bill fallout, what we think we know about 2022 midterms, and end with the latest in the Steele dossier, a term we haven't heard now in a little while, I think. Let's dive right in. David, supply chain issues coming to you. Well, first, Sarah, I want to be known for like generalized excellence like Chris. Whatever. She took away my editor title. So, you know, she giveth and she taketh away. It's fine. All right. Well, I'll just take generalized excellence over editor any day. But uh, so, Chris, because of your excellence, I'm going to start with you about supply chains. Uh, this is one of those issues that you feel like, as far as its importance, you don't even have to preface it with anything. You don't have to begin with anything because this is one of these universal experiences that people are going through right now, where in unpredictable areas, sometimes in areas that are really important to them, they just literally cannot get the goods that they want. They just can't get them. It's incredibly frustrating to people. You've got the holidays coming up and there's no real assurance that people are going to be able to enjoy the holidays the way they traditionally have. And any dive into it demonstrates that it's almost impossibly complicated, that a bottleneck here has ramifications five steps down the line. And then just when that is eased up, another bottleneck happens and another one and another one. If you're Joe Biden, A, from a political standpoint, is this job one? And B, can he really fix it? I read with interest about how the brownouts in China intended to help the country lower its carbon emission targets uh, have contributed to this. This is this is definitely a butterfly effect thing. You have all of this stuff going on. Uh, then you have things that are not... Uh, supply chain qua supply chain that factor into this. We saw uh, today as we're recording this, the highest increase in inflation in year in decades uh, from the month of October this year over 2020. Now, of course, in 2020, prices were artificially depressed because of the pandemic, but it was not artificially uh, high when I paid $3.85 a gallon for gas, if it cost if it cost me fifty dollars to fill up my Volkswagen, uh, that's that's not a good thing. So Biden is confronting a political problem that isn't just about the supply chain; it's about a bunch of interlocking problems that have to do with labor shortages and high prices and fuel availability and all of these things. If you're Biden, I don't think you can solve it, but what you can do is shift the blame someplace. Make sure that the blame is resting someplace that's not on you. For Biden, supply chain is a better problem to have than inflation because if if the focus is on inflation, uh, big spending uh, is part of it and presidents get blamed for inflation and that's worse. So if I'm Biden, I like people talking about the supply chain more than I do them talking about inflation. Fascinating. Um, 
I can understand. I mean, I, I understand because inflation is also a universal experience that that uh, people are enduring along with supply chain. I'm interested in if Sarah agrees with that. Are you would you be if you're Joe Biden? I want to talk more about supply chain than inflation. And um, well, I'll I'll save part part three of this for Steve, but I'm very interested, Sarah, about your your thoughts on on for Joe Biden, supply chain or inflation, a worse problem? Well, politically, I want to look at it from a slightly different lens, which is um, from the voters perspective. Are they correct to hold Joe Biden accountable for it? And from Joe Biden's perspective, is any of this within his control? Now, that doesn't mean that you don't talk about things that aren't within your control, but it's definitely a factor you want to consider as you pick what to focus on. So, for instance, look at the infrastructure bill very much within his control, whether it passes, what, where that money goes, how quickly the money can get out and stuff. Um, you know, I'm not saying he snaps his fingers and a bridge goes up, but that pretty, you know, easy stuff within the realm of a presidency. On the far other extreme is inflation, something economists aren't even very good at predicting when it will happen, let alone what is the specific cause. And that puts Biden in a particularly bad spot when it comes to inflation. There's always, you know, predictions. Well, if you, you know, flush the system with cash, like perhaps his build back better agenda, as Joe Manchin has predicted, that would exacerbate inflation. Um, But in some ways, economists were stunned slash wrong that we weren't having inflation for so many uh, years in the past decade-ish or two, that it wasn't higher than it was. Uh, So inflation is particularly tough in terms of the control issue. The supply chain issues for me are somewhere in the middle. Um, You know, people are blaming this on all sorts of stuff. I think that Steyerwalt's explanation was probably best. And it's just everything. It's everything all at once. And so fixing one thing doesn't help it. Um, the payments that were being made, for instance, to up unemployment payments, those have stopped. And I saw, for instance, Secretary Buttigieg on Morning Joe saying, well, those stopped and the supply chain issues are still here. So see, those weren't the cause of it. No, no, no. That's not how cause and effect works. Just because you stop something and the problem doesn't get fixed right away, you still would have to answer whether there are long-term effects from the thing you were doing. And in this case, when you look at the savings that Americans have built up, um, that is part of the whole formula here. Americans built up more savings. They're actually now trying to spend that, which is creating the higher demand, which is then exacerbating the supply chain issues that would probably be there anyway, which gets back to, is this within Joe Biden's control? Is this Joe Biden's fault? I think the supply chain stuff is actually the hardest because some of it is within his control. Some of it is his fault in a sort of a looser sense of fault here. Um, I think that it will be very hard going into Thanksgiving and Christmas if Americans can't get turkey and their gas prices are huge and they're being told that it's not real. The New York Times had that headline that this is all psychological, the psychological effects of inflation. And then today we find out that no, actually, uh, real wages have gone down um, 1.6%. That's just going to be tough if Joe Biden doesn't make this his number one issue. So, Steve, I imagine some listeners are jumping up and down and going, why are you separating supply chain and inflation? 
because they're completely linked. Uh, if you the supply chain means that we have decreased of supplies of, of things that we want, that increased demand, decreased supply, price goes up. Price goes up. Except that the reverse isn't true. If you fix the supply chain issues, I am not at all convinced that inflation, well, certainly not going to go down, but I'm not convinced it'll even stop. Right. But we there is a very strong argument that decreased supply is re- leading to increased demand, which is a contributing factor to inflation. For example, as you know, uh, there's a Derek Thompson has a great piece in The Atlantic about container costs, just the cost of sending a container have elevated in some cases by 10x. So you have an enormous increase in container costs. And so I guess the, the question to you, Steve, is on a more practical matter, what concretely, what can the president of the United States do? Because he can't move chip production from Taiwan with a snap of his fingers. He can't move iPhone production with a snap of his fingers. He can't provide 70,000 new truckers with a snap of his fingers. What can the president concretely do, not immediately, but over the next six months, nine months, to ease these supply chain issues, or is it going to start to untangle itself? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the short and direct answer to your question is very little. And this is one of the reasons I think that that the Biden administration is in some political peril here. You know, if, if nobody's written better about this than our own Scott Lincecum in his Capitalism newsletter, where he he looks takes a, a, a sort of very long look at supply chains and supply chain issues and what's causing them today, and says, "Look, this is an accumulation of months and years worth of bad policy, in effect." Um, exacerbated by sort of the natural disruptions that we saw related to the pandemic. So when you have a problem that is years or decades in the the making, you can't flip a switch and solve it. We've seen the Biden administration try to do this. And and in a sort of in a strange way, I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic. They want to project that they're doing something about the supply chain. So you've had executive orders going back to February. You've had uh, press briefings where they talk about the supply chain. You, you have Joe Biden saying, I mean, there are new news stories just within the past couple of weeks. Biden administration moves to su- fix supply chain bottlenecks in The New York Times. I think what they're doing is, is sort of tinkering around the margins of the problem. They are not going to be able to fix the supply chain issues full stop. But by continuing to talk about how they're trying, I think they're sort of perversely giving people, creating expectations that they can. And then when they can't, people are going to look at the White House and say, hey, you've been talking about this for more than a year and suggested that you could fix this. Where are the fixes? So I think that's the sort of problem number one. And problem number two, and it's closely related, David, I think relates to inflation, you have almost the, the reverse dynamic on inflation, where the Biden administration, going back to the early spring, had sort of shrugged its shoulders at inflation and warnings about coming inflation and people who tied this massive increase in spending to risks of even higher inflation, famously, or at least famously in, in sort of D.C. policy world, getting in fights with Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, a Democrat. Um, who said, hey, this this is going to be a problem, people, in the White House, press briefing after press briefing, speech after speech, 
was saying, ah, we're not really that worried about it. We think this is transitory. We'll move beyond it. We'll solve these other pandemic-related problems, and, and all will be well. So they're in this situation where they've created expectations that they can fix supply chain problems, and they look like they've been dismissive of inflation problems. And the thing that people feel when they go to the grocery, the thing that I feel when I go to, to, to Nick's to get my meat down in Southern Maryland, it's way more expensive. Like we feel this every day. It's Chris uh, loading his his car with obviously premium gas. It's it's no, meat no, prices. No, 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 it's no, no. it's eighty seven. Eighty seven. When you have a Bentley, I think they call for <laughs> they call for that kind of fancy gas. But it this is the stuff that people feel. You look at energy costs. You look at heating costs. You look at the cost of of, of everyday items and. This this is a problem, I think a big political problem for the Biden administration. Then you layer on top of all of that, and we'll we'll talk about this in, in greater depth in a moment, their insistence that the solution to the problem is vastly more federal spending feels like a disconnect. Well, and it's also worth pointing out here, the supply chain problem will be solved. It will be solved uh, because markets are awesome. Uh, and people will, a lot of people are going to get rich figuring out how to get people goods quickly. Uh, the labor shortages are being solved right now. And all, both of those things add to inflation, right? Because the wages are going to go up. These things are going to go up. The only way to deal with, infl and, and this is what I'm sure Steve, the white house was afraid of throughout the whole thing. There's a uh, federal Reserve, there's there's a Federal Reserve slot coming open. Uh, Jerome Powell is up for reappointment too. Um, if the White House is start signaling that they're worried about inflation, what's the Fed going to do? The Fed is going to do the only thing that we have the only tool. Uh, Paul Paul Volcker, peace be upon him, uh, taught us that there's only one thing that we can do. And that is we can jack up interest rates. And when you jack up interest rates, it has really deleterious effects on hiring and all these other things. So I guess this is what I was trying to say the first go around. I think the hope for the Biden administration is that rising wages, rising costs, and all of these things that are coming in to ameliorate supply chain kinds of problems will get us over the hump before Jerome Powell and company put the brakes on and start jacking up interest rates. Well, you know, we've got a situation where there are there are untold billions of dollars to be made in the private sector sorting this problem out. There's, there are massive incentives to sort this problem out, just massive. And then the Biden administration, the, an external force to the market in an atmosphere of inflation is wanting to pump trillions of dollars more into the system. And this is this is why, I mean, we, we don't need to preview too much. There is, a, there is a smart argument for intensity against this Build Back Better initiative that's wrong time, guys. Exactly, exactly the wrong time for this. Um, there's, a, there's a word, I think, for there's a, uh, a prudent way to, to urge caution, uh, patience, I think is a better word, on the supply chain. But inflation, adding trillions of new spending, that's deeply concerning. I Again, I just think that even if, I think Chris is absolutely right, the supply chain issues will get worked out. They'll get worked out by offering higher wages until people take jobs again as truck drivers or are less likely to leave jobs as truck drivers is actually some of what's going on here. 
and and everything else, by the way, service industry. The I mean, it's called a supply chain for a reason. But okay, so now they make higher wages, so their ability to demand goods goes up. Once that demand goes up, the price of the good goes up, um, and that's why fixing the supply chain issues won't even stop inflation. Certainly not in the near term. And so the supply chain issues will last longer than we think because the labor issues are going to last longer than we think. And both of those are going to contribute to inflation lasting longer than both the labor issues and the supply chain issues. And that's how Joe Biden starts looking a lot like Jimmy Carter circa 2023. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. All right, next topic. Chris, we're heading to you. We want to talk about the infrastructure deal. This is a bipartisan infrastructure package. It passed, but there's been some fallout. Well, I mean, our terrible Congress and our awful parties uh, have <laughs> seldom uh, been so obviously terrible and awful uh, as they have been in the past week, where I, I just, I, I, I want to frame it this way, which is, so you had, um, you have today, uh, people uh, giving death threats uh, to Fred Upton of Michigan uh, for being one of the 13 Republicans who voted for this bipartisan legislation. Um, and you have, uh, I, would, I, I, I won't say credible, but people in positions of authority uh, saying that uh, the Republicans who voted for this legislation should be stripped of their committee assignments as a punishment for voting for this legislation. Um, on the other side, you have all of the members of the squad who voted against this legislation. And what's funny here, what's funny here is there are a handful of Republicans. Now, I don't know if I would have voted for this legislation if I was in Congress, but then again, I would only ever be in Congress for one term, uh, because <laughs> I would vote against everything and, and be horrible. Um, but suffice it to say that Outside of a handful of weirdos like me, um, this is legislation that had Donald Trump proposed it. And when he did propose it at twice the cost, when he proposed it at double the cost, that these phonies who are now calling for the gibbeting of uh, the 13 members who voted for it would have sold their mothers to vote for it if it was Donald Trump's glorious infrastructure plan. Um and obviously the right, the, the right normal thing to do in, when I say the old days, I mean the old days of 10 years ago, was to say, well, while I disagree with my colleagues who voted for this, we are going to unite to oppose, we are all opposed to this chaotic mess of a junk drawer of legislation that is this social welfare, not fake infrastructure bill. But no, that's not what they're doing. The Republican, because this is where the clicks and the likes are. And then on the Democratic side, you have the squad voting against this legislation to punish Democrats. This is legislation that they want. They want the bill. Their constituents want the bill. It's overwhelmingly popular, but they voted against it to punish Democrats for not voting for bills in the order that they want, which, of course, by the way, just 
and we'll and we'll get to this a little bit, but is incredibly self-defeating for the progressives. Uh, so, Sarah, I'll start with you. Um, how much is Terry McAuliffe like, geez, guys, you couldn't have passed this dumb infrastructure bill a week earlier so that I could have uh, had it to run on and talk about dredging out the ports and building new roads in northern Virginia? Yeah, look, the truth is that it would not have helped Terry McAuliffe the week before. They needed it in August. Um, you know, they needed the House to move on it after the Senate moved on it instead of Nancy Pelosi uh, for, I mean, I guess we know the reasons they're not inexplicable, but they're politically inexplicable, um, deciding to sit on it, then setting deadlines in September that she couldn't meet. If this had been passed in September, I think it would have helped Terry McAuliffe a little. And a little is actually all he needed, right? It's not that Glenn Youngkin blew him out of the water, um, but it's not the infrastructure bill, right? It's it's this whole narrative of the Democrats having control of all three houses, the White House being the other house I'm referring to here, and just the gang who can't shoot straight and they're fighting amongst each other. They don't even know what they want half the time. Um, you know, why would you want these people in power? Uh, well, I don't, but that's uh, not up to me. Uh, uh, Steve, the we know that the Republican Party is in a very weird, a deeply weird place. Um, but I, I, even I was surprised at the potency of the loathing around this vote. Um, did it surprise you, uh, or is this is this just how things are now? Uh, yeah, I would say it didn't surprise me much. Um, and perhaps that's because I have such low expectations. So I most definitely would not have voted for this on substantive policy grounds. I don't think we can be spending this kind of money. And I think in many respects, it's irresponsible to do so. Even if there are, even if we can, there's sort of cross partisan, cross ideological, um, agreement on certain infrastructure needs, this is not the package to do it. And I think, and I'm sympathetic to the people who say that this paves the way to this broader spending package. The, the reaction though, uh, among Republicans, I, I think you have to put this in, in the broader context. I mean, there are now there are serious discussions about taking committee assignments away from the 13 Republicans in the house who voted for this. Um, Politico reported that these were sort of rank and file discussions. I believe those discussions have made their way to Republican leadership and that there are actual conversations about potentially doing this. Um, you have to look at this against the backdrop of what conversations are not taking place. Uh, you had uh, just within the past 48 hours, Representative Paul Gosar, who's one of the Republicans, fringe, fringe Republicans <laughs> who had a role, some role in planning January 6th that is fairly unrepentant about what he did and, and what he argues. Um, he attended uh, and spoke at a pretty, pretty openly white nationalist conference uh, a few months ago and received no real punishment for having done so. He regularly retweets and and, uh, and amplifies Nick Fuentes, who is a white nationalist, alt-right provocateur. 
really, really bad behavior. You have Marjorie Taylor Greene, who does a lot of the same things and, and says things on the regular that are demonstrably untrue, meant to provoke. You have many Republicans in the House Republican Matt, Conference. Madison, Madison Cawthorn saying he would go primary all of them. Right, right. And has and, and you know, within the past month said something about, uh, you know, the need for a revolution, if I'm not mistaken, hinting at at political violence. I mean, you have a bunch of Republicans who should be on the political fringes, shouldn't really be involved in, in politics and instead are able to make the kinds of arguments they make. I mean, arguments is too is too generous a word <laughs> to say the kind of provocative BS that that they say. And there are zero consequences, absolutely none, to say nothing of the fact that you have you know, many rank-and-file Republicans who are still to this day continuing to promote the, the, the view, the, the demonstrably untrue view that the election was actually stolen from Donald Trump. They parrot the, the kinds of silly arguments that Donald Trump says. All that by way of background. You have people who have genuine policy differences. I don't agree with them on the policy, who cast a vote the way that they did because they believe that this bill would be good. You have they may have there may have been strategic calculations in there as well. They are there's talk of kicking them out of the party, taking them off of committee assignments. On the other hand, you have radicals and freaks and and rank and file Republicans who are saying things that we know are not true who are promoted. Uh, the National Republican Congressional Committee this week had Donald Trump speak to its, its annual fundraising gala, one of, it, one of its fundraising dinners, in which Donald Trump said the insurrection was on November 3rd, not on January 6th. I mean, this is unbelievably provocative language, and nobody cares. But you have some moderates in the party who vote the, what, what they consider to be the wrong way on an infrastructure bill, and it's, you know, and end their careers is is the call. It's it really is just outrageous. And of course, voting for legis- uh, this anger coming from people who, again, would have voted for the same legislation at twice the cost. Right. If it exactly. Was for Donald Trump. And yeah. so that's why they're phony. They're 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 goofballs. Um, OK, so, David, the to Steve's point about uh, what Trump is saying about those things. I look at Kevin McCarthy as sort of the uh, – he's the last emperor of the old Republican regime, right? He is the the, the last in the lo- – I, 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 I'm not getting into Dune. I have not seen Dune. I'm going to have to go <laughs> see Dune with my 13-year-old, and I, I accept this as my fate. But uh, that in that in 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 uh, we'll call it House Gingrich, uh, McCarthy is the last of his line uh, from the '94 revolution, and his strategy seems to be: yes, Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene and all these people. Yep, it's awful, it's rotten, stipulated, but we got to go along with it because uh, we're going to win. We're about to win. Here, here it comes. Uh, if you were to, if you were to apply the same shift in the national electorate as the average one we saw between Virginia and New Jersey, it would result in the Republicans gaining more than 30 seats in the House. They'd have 240-some-odd seats uh, in the House. Um, how dangerous is it for this? Is, uh, talk, talk about a, uh, a stilted, uh, a, have you stopped beating your wife yet? Um, the, how dangerous is it for a Republican Party that, that can win 
doing the wrong stuff. Well, it's extremely dangerous and it's completely unnecessary. It's dangerous. And even and and what makes it even more sort of venal in my mind is that they don't have to do the wrong stuff to win. Like if you if you take action against Paul Gosar, is that district going blue? Mm-mm. I mean, really, is that district going blue? If you're decisive against Marjorie Taylor Greene, is that district going blue? I mean, and that's one of the things that's frustrating here. Look, you should do the right thing even when it's hard. Absolutely, no question. Taking action against Marjorie Taylor Greene as a caucus, not just the, the overall house, but as a caucus, taking action against Gosar, taking action when Cawthorn has his violent fantasies, all of these things, you should do the right thing even when it's hard. They don't really actually have political risk in doing the right thing with some of these nuts and cranks in the GOP. They're just that weak. Like they're they're just that weak. And so, but isn't there isn't there a political risk uh, that comes from angering the Trump? Right. That if you if you hurt Trump's favorites, then Trump will be unhappy and come hurt you. I mean, there's might be some risk here, but there's a real question when we're going into the midterms, when the funda- when the fundamentals that the Democrats are facing are so bad, they're so bad, that the, the idea that can Trump can come to the rescue of Marjorie Taylor Greene and it's going to materially impact the fundamentals, that he could come to the rest- rescue of Paul Gosar or Cawthorn and materially impact the fundamentals or Bobert. I don't, I just really don't think that's the case. I think where he might have more of an impact is if he's weighing into a very specific close Georgia Senate race. Yep. yep. That, Ohio, that's Pennsylvania. Where it, yep. Right. Statewide contest. Right. That's where he's going to have an impact. But I think as far as can you do the right, can you muster up the one tiny ounce of courage to, and it's not even, you're not even going to make Fox that angry if you take on Gosar. It's more like OAN. It's more like OAN is too much for you now. You can't stand up to those guys. That That's the thing that's really in, frustrating and infuriating. And then the problem you're going to have just wargaming this out is let's say that the Republicans do take the House as they're expected to take. It, it's expected. I mean, it's not inevitable, but it's expected. Then how will that be seen? It will be seen as a vindication of this exact approach, which is incredibly destructive on its own terms, unnecessary just in pure pragmatic terms. And and that's where we'll be. And and that's one of my big big concerns about uh, 2022 is you could have a repudiation of a dem- the Democrats, which in many ways the Democrats have deserved some repudiation after Afghanistan and and the mess of this be- Build Back Better and other you know other things. You can have a repudiation of the Democrats, but how do you repudiate the Democrats without vindicating this party, this other party? And that's that's the catch 22 we're in. And, that, and by the way, the what we saw from 2018 to 2020, uh, we might see again from 2022 to 2024, which is taking the wrong signals. And as, as you say, David, it's a very real possibility that just as Democratic Socialists thought that they were having their moment rolling out of 2018, 
that the uh, populist nationalists in the Republican Party, if they take back the House, will say, see, it works. Put up more anime videos of killing <laughs> Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. More. Right, right, exactly. All right, Chris, I'm coming right back to you in this next topic. What's the most surprising thing you've learned uh, looking at the voting data that we now have a week out from the 2021 elections? Um, I, just how right I was. I just, I meditate <laughs> on it. Sometimes uh, I'll just look at the cross tabs uh, and just say like, ah, oh, so good. Uh, no, 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 no. Um, I, what, here's what surprises me. So, you know, we saw an electorate in Virginia in 2017 that looked very much like a quadrennial electorate. It was, uh, 60, 7% white, I think, 60, maybe even 63% white uh, in 2017. The Virginia electorate in the gubernatorial election is, is usually 73, 75% white. Um, and this year was not the anomaly in Virginia. 2017 was the anomaly in Virginia. That was the that was what was weird. You know, there's uh, a high, high correlation between income and education, and uh, uh, voting proclivity. Uh, the richer you are and better educated you are, the higher propensity of voter you're likely to be. And these are elections for employed, educated people, essentially, right? Uh, and you don't go vote. The, you don't go vote in an election that you don't think matters to you. And for a lot of working class folks and for a lot of, and that of course in Virginia includes a lot of black and Hispanic voters, uh, who cares, right? Which of these rich, I, I love the fact that uh, Glenn Youngkin and Terry McAuliffe live like five miles apart uh, in the, <laughs> on the, on the rich side of Fairfax County. One lives in Great Falls and another lives in McLean. Um, and I can definitely see how a, uh, a lightly attached Democrat uh, uh, in Virginia would say, I don't really care. I don't really care what happens here and I don't need to get going. So the big, the big thing I learned was, uh, how anomalous Trump was in Virginia, uh, and, uh, the consequences of Trump in 2017 and 2018. David, what have you come away from 2021 thinking about, uh, as you think about 2022? Yeah. You know, one of the things I'm when I what I came around came came away from was that 2020 doesn't really matter to most voters in 2021. That there's a lot of people who are trying to look back and see what it means about, OK, what do the Republicans still think about Stop the Steal? What do where what's the Trump hangover, et cetera, et cetera, when the reality is a lot of voters are just sort of what is going on right now that I'm concerned about and that I want to deal with? And it seemed as if, you know, with Terry McAuliffe running, he's, he seemed to have two big swings and misses here. Swing and miss number one was this, I'm going to make this race about Trump. When Trump's not in the White House and Trump wasn't on the ballot and Trump never came to Virginia, making the race about Trump was backward looking. Then the other big swing and a miss that he had, which I think has really interesting implications going forward was then making the race about the threat to abortion rights. He spent a pile of money uh, trying to make this threat about, make the case that this uh, race was about a threat to abortion rights. And unlike a lot of races before it, he actually has a point. If, the, if, 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 if the Supreme Court 
overturns Roe, then this would be a governor who had have the ability to sign restrictive legislation into uh, law to a scale not seen in almost 50 years. And he's, how is that a swing and a miss? Only 8% of people who went to the polls listed abortion as their number one issue. And six, almost 60% of those said they were pro-life. It cut for the pro-life position. So two huge swings and misses. It seems to me, you know, a lot of us who are in these sort of uh, the, the pundit class of Americans are spending a lot of time litigating a year ago. And there are a lot of good reasons to litigate a year ago. There's a lot of good reasons to hold people accountable, for example, for what happened on January 6th. But in the meantime, regular folks move on and they decide races based on the choices in front of them and the issues in front of them that are impacting their lives in the moment. And it seems like McAuliffe just totally whiffed on making that case. So, Steve, the two things for me were turnout, which was high, real, real high. And I think we'll be spending more time in the next year. If I was a a Republican operative still, I would be thinking really almost exclusively about the turnout question far more than anything else that we saw that was specific to New Jersey or Virginia or Long Island. Um, What did that? And also just that while everyone seems quite bullish on the House. I am too. I am far less bullish on the Senate. And Steve, I was wondering where you are on the Senate races at this point. And if you think this wave that we saw in 2021 uh, predicts a wave like that in the Senate. Um, so s- starting with your last point, um, I think, you know, as as we've said on this podcast before and on this podcast today, the 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 landscape, the environment, the map, whatever you want to call it, is very positive for Republicans uh, to take the House in 2022. Um, certainly, I think the issue environment and President Biden's continued struggles in virtually every issue. I mean, if you go down issue by issue by issue, and we know how much, Sarah, you love issue polling. But if you look at issue I've already by been issue, rage Joe, tweeting about it today, Steve. Joe, Joe I woke Biden up this morning is to rage tweet. struggling. That's, that's, that's good. Put it in a piece. <laughs> do it and do another bonus newsletter. Don't waste it on Twitter. Um, the, you know, he, he's in trouble, right? I mean, and, and, you know, the, the, the common phrase is, you know, a, a, a day is a lifetime in politics, a month is a lifetime in politics, a year is a lifetime in politics. That certainly applies and, and things can, can turn around. But right now, I think looking at the map and looking at the, the issue environment, Joe Biden's in a lot of trouble as it relates to the House. On the Senate side, I think it's complicated um, in part because of issues that we saw play out in the Virginia race in particular. Candidates really matter. And you look at the kinds of candidates that are fighting for Republican nominations in key states. And I'm thinking here of Pennsylvania, Ohio, Georgia, and elsewhere. Um, Dr. Oz is getting in, Steve. Don't worry. Dr. Oz jumping in Pennsylvania. I'm, I'm it's not be fine. sure he's the problem solver <laughs> in, in that case. Um, you know, th- th- there are, I think there are real problems with that Republicans face. The National Republican Senatorial Committee, led by Senator Rick Scott of, of uh, Florida, these are candidates that are that could do very well in a Republican primary and could do very poorly in a general election. I think that's the challenge. 
for Republicans in the Senate. On Virginia specifically, I mean, there's a there's a fascinating interview that that we've kicked around in the office a little bit by Ryan Lizza of Politico um, with Jeff Rowe and uh, is it Christina Davison yep. um, talking about what they did to win. So you have all of this speculation. What happened? How did this how did this go? How did you go from Joe Biden winning Virginia by 10 points to Glenn Youngkin winning by two points? And Ryan Lizza went and asked him. And they sort of walk through very specifically what they've done. And I think, Sarah, it corresponds with a lot of your thinking about what was likely to win in Virginia. Um, but you know, th- their argument was we focused, we, we ignored all the chatter. We didn't pay attention to what was being said on Fox News. We didn't chase the, the the clicks and the outrage on, you know, kind of the the craziest of the critical race theory, um, you know, challenges or problems. And he did, and Terry McAuliffe did. So they. You know spoke what else is just an interesting voters. An interesting footnote on that: Terry McAuliffe was more underwater with voters than Joe Biden. And you'll notice that when Afghanistan started happening, Delta started happening, and Joe Biden was getting these body blows in national news every day, the Yunkin message didn't change, which is, you know, again, you look at those numbers, they were following the data that they had, which was actually, no, Terry McAuliffe is the bigger target. Don't get distracted, even by a good, easy, low-hanging fruit distraction. Um, So a very disciplined campaign as well, I think. Very. And look, I, I think, and they, they admit this in, in this interview, and we'll put, the, uh, we'll put the link to the interview in the show notes. The broader political environment did matter. I mean, it matters, right? I mean, Joe Biden not doing well, not being popular, that matters. And I think particularly, as we've said again here on this podcast before, the fact that Joe Biden ran saying he would return the country to normalcy and that you know all would be sort of stable and well again after four years of chaos under Donald Trump and has utterly failed to do that. That really matters. I think that says to voters, Democrats can make all these promises, but they have trouble delivering them. But the, the bigger issue, it seems pretty clear, was that they were talking about the things that voters were talking about. And in particular, suburban voters were talking about. They were talking about education, not just critical race theory and the kind of things that excites people on Twitter, but this whole you know last 18 months of failures by the public schools and the inability of parents to feel heard and to shape the way that their kids are being educated. You had the, the, the gaffe from Terry McAuliffe in, in a debate, I believe it was in late September, where he says, in effect, you know, we're 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 not going to. Parents don't choose what what kids are taught, or shouldn't choose what kids are taught. And David had a very good newsletter explaining why, in in some respects, as a descriptive matter, Terry McAuliffe wasn't that off. But it was not the message that parents wanted to hear. And crucially, it was the it was it it played into exactly the message that the Youngkin campaign had been pushing at that point for five months. So this was not a new thing. The Yunkin campaign didn't have to seize on that, suddenly turn it into something and make an issue of it. This was what they had been saying for months. They'd been saying Terry McAuliffe is a Washington, D.C. political boss. He cares about big picture politics. He cares about, you know, he's happy to add layers of government in between you and the way that your life uh, unfolds. And he'll do it again if you elect him. And then he said that. And they could point to it and say, see, this is what we were talking about. 
And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turned into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, Steve, well, we're coming right back to you because you've got the last topic, which is explaining the Steele dossier to all of us. Yeah, first I want to just you know take take listeners a little bit behind the scenes here and just express my disappointment in our in our group overall here. Um, <laughs> each of us participating in this conversation, the the producer um, Caleb Parker, you know, we talk a lot about about not um, not going for cheap clicks, not going for the the easy things that excite people, not trying to bring people in just by talking about things that will outrage them and. You know, obviously we failed with our story selection in this. This is clearly a, a clickbait play. We're just trying to boost our numbers by first ah. doing supply chain, <laughs> then infrastructure, <laughs> then a week old campaign, <laughs> and then a five-year-old story <laughs> that people haven't been focused on. Hey, I wanted to talk about the Getty wedding and you guys laughed nope. at me. <laughs> Boo. Fair. Okay. Boo. So yes, the opposite is true. We we issued clickbait in favor of talking about these things because we think they're interesting. So I, I, I do want to talk about um the steel dossier and and um contrary to my suggestion just a moment ago, there there actually was news about about all of this. The Justice Department issued a 39-page indictment of Igor Dashenko, who was a former Brookings Institution scholar, Russian, Russian analyst. Um, who apparently played a, a role and perhaps not an insignificant role in furnishing information to Christopher Steele, the former British spy who put together the Steele dossier uh, for a group of Washington, um, what should we call them? Apo Research Investigative Intelligence types called Fusion GPS, former journalists who put the steel who helped put the steel dossier together. Um, I don't want to spend much time here giving hot takes and and you know going back and forth about our opinion about these things. I'd like to actually try to explain this. And I know Sarah and David, you talked about this a little bit on advisory opinions, but let me ask some basic questions about what's going on here. And then uh, Chris, I want to turn to you for sort of what it all means and and whether it should change what we're what we're thinking. David, can you tell us why this is in the news and, and what this indictment is all about? Yeah. So basically those who remember the Steele dossier, which is this 
um, put this document of opposition research that was put together to kind of sort of maybe kind of look like an intelligence report. Um, what this indictment is about is about one of the sources that Christopher Steele, that um, the author of the Steele dossier, relied upon. And it was a man, a Russian national named Igor Danchenko. And he collected, according to the indictment, there's really two key um, paragraphs in the indictment. As part of putting together the Steele dossier, paragraph A to the indictment says that UK person one, that Steele, relied primarily on US-based na Russian national Igor Danchenko to collect the information that ultimately formed the core of the allegations found in the, quote, company reports. So Danchenko was providing information to Steele. Number 10, so that's paragraph eight, paragraph 10. Danchenko false, stated falsely that he'd never communicated with a particular U.S.-based individual who is a longtime participant in the Democratic Party politics and executive at a U.S. public relations firm. In other words, Danchenko lied to the FBI about what he did in this process. So this is a straight up, this dude lied to the FBI kind of indictment. So you had a operation of the Hillary Clinton campaign, which was this generation of this opposition research. Danchenko was one of the individuals who collected the information. And then he went and he lied to the FBI about what he did. It's really pretty simple and straightforward. Sarah, what, I mean, this hasn't been in the news. People haven't been paying attention to it for quite a while. And um, John Durham, who was tapped by uh, former uh, Attorney General Barr to look into this carefully, has been taking his time doing these investigations and, and has now rolled out a couple of different indictments. Um, both of the people he's indicted have had ties broadly to Clinton world. So can we now conclude that the FBI and the so-called deep state was manipulated by the Clinton campaign, or is that racing ahead of the evidence that we currently have in the public domain? I don't think it's racing ahead, but I do think it is getting ahead of where, um, where I am at least. So, uh, obviously, disclosure, I worked at the Department of Justice from 2017 uh, through the beginning of 2019. I was there for all of the Mueller investigation. The Durham report, we expect to critique uh, the beginnings of the Russia investigation that turned into the Mueller investigation, the actions of the FBI, um, and potentially the investigators as well. I found it very annoying during my time at the Department of Justice inside to see people try to grasp tea leaves um, out of the air and tell me what was going to be in the Mueller report. From both sides, by the way. It, every side just said that everything that they saw validated what they wanted to be in the Mueller report. And so when I say that um, uh, it's not running ahead, look, we have these indictments. Uh, Mueller had indictments. He had 12 GRU officers that were indicted for hacking, Russian intelligence officers. And uh, again, people started to say, see, aha, the Trump campaign was working with these Russian intelligence officers, but there was no connection to any American with these GRU officers. Uh, we have these indictments from the Durham team. 
they are mentioning, well, the first one, of course, was someone uh, pretty directly connected to the Clinton campaign, an attorney. This one is uh, indicting someone for lying about their connections to someone who was involved in the Clinton campaign. So yes, I expect we are going to read quite a bit about the Clinton campaign's role in the creation of the Steele dossier when the Durham report comes out. Beyond that, though, I think we should wait for the Durham report. I know it's a very dispatchy take to make, but uh, I, I just don't see any reason to not wait for the guy who has spent his like whole work day for two years doing this. Like, let's let him tell us, you know, what he's found and then we can pull it apart. I do think it's worth noting the Russia investigation predated the Steele dossier. And so I don't think, for instance, that anything we've seen in these indictments is, aha, the investigation was predicated on a lie. Um, Second thing worth noting that I see in these indictments, right, they're not being indicted for the Steele dossier being false. Um, You're indicted for lying to the FBI. It doesn't mean that the Steele dossier is true. In fact, there are things in the indictment um, in which the, you know, Durham is basically saying that there are parts of the Steele dossier that were fabricated. But I do think it's actually pretty important to separate what the indictment is for versus what we are gleaning from it. Um, And just the overall importance of the Steele dossier is part of what we expect to see in the Durham report. Again, we know it's not what, um, that the, that the investigation predated it, but we also know that it was used in a FISA application, for instance. Um, and so I, I don't think that it will be, oh, well, the Steele dossier was total crap, but also it didn't matter. At the same time, I don't think we're going to see, but for the Steele dossier, there would not have been a Russia investigation. So all reasons to look forward to Durham's report and to not make guesses as to what's in it. Yeah, so you won't be surprised that I uh, heartily endorse that that position, and and we're fine to wait. Let's wait until we have more facts. I, I guess my question to you, Chris, would be, that's all well and good. It's probably the, the right course and was the right course really going back several years, but I would argue that that's not necessarily what we saw, particularly from the mainstream media, right? We, we saw oh, no. them <laughs> seizing on um, you know, elements of the Steele dossier to be sure. And PP tape. other, yeah, and other um, parts of this, other allegations, we'll say, about Donald Trump as they crafted this narrative that Donald Trump was, you know, an active, uh, you know, was being actively said, manip- yeah. manipulated by Russian intelligence. Now, let me preface my question by saying there were clearly lots of questions in the public domain, in my view, that gave rise to concerns about about that, generally speaking. But giving rise to concerns or uh, a, a smattering of data points is very different than we know because of these investigations that have happened that Donald Trump X, Y, and Z. And it seems to me that the, uh, many in the mainstream media are, are guilty of the latter. Am I misremembering this? No, no. Oh, no, 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 no. It was uh, it was uh, dumb. It was uh, supernova dumb. Uh, and it was motivated reasoning uh, in the same way that now uh, right media will say it's 
it's all a, it's all a phony Russia scam. It's all it's Trump was right. It was all set up because this one Russian has been indicted. It's all fake. Um, but uh, I guess a couple of things. Uh, one, which you just state for the record, these shady dirtbag outfits that are political intelligence outfits that are kind of spies, but kind of people who do opposition research have become a really unhealthy part of our process. Uh, and, you know, at the new dispatch offices, which I will point out are right down the hall from the Sulphur Association. And I didn't even know Sulphur had an association. And I just want to credit them for keeping it tight. Keep Big Sulphur's keeping it under the radar. But here in the in the canyons of K Street and and down in this part of town, there's a lot of people doing what these folks do, which is sweeping together some oppo research, talking to a guy, and then passing it on. In this case, it ended up being used in a warrant, uh, and I'm sure this is not the only time that it has been used in a warrant. So so people should be aware of that, and I think this is part of making them aware of that. Um, but the other thing, and David, I say this with real love. <laughs> Lawyers ruin everything. Uh, Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Sarah's a lawyer, too. I I know, but but you're practicing. But you're you're doing it. You're engaged. Wait, I'm the one with with an active bar license. David's not, is he? Oh, Oh, mine is active. Mine is active. I didn't mean mean to get into into a barrister showdown here. Oh, you got Um, it. You got it, though. Okay, exactly. That's that's where I am. Um, This is because I got his title wrong, y'all. No, 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 no. I just didn't. I did not know that you were practicing, Sarah. Um, here's the thing. Donald Trump's campaign tried to collude with Russian assets. We know it. They said it. They lied about it. It's a fact. Uh, they had a meeting at Trump Tower with senior campaign uh, folks uh, intentionally to try to get dirt on Hillary Clinton. It's a fact. It happened. Uh, Donald Trump went to Helsinki with Vladimir Putin and engaged in, I would say, the most pitiful conduct I have ever seen a U.S. president engage in abroad. It was a heinous display of Donald Trump sucking up to Vladimir Putin uh, in a very, very public way. So we know the facts about Donald Trump being uh, gross and seemingly compromised, or there's something icky about Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. But what we believe now is that lawyers or the criminal justice system will produce dispositive answers on these questions. Uh, And we went through this with Hillary Clinton in her emails in 2016. Well, we'll just, when the lawyers come back and you're like, wait, did you put a secret server in your toilet room? Is that what you, (laughs) well, yeah, but we'll wait until, there's there's no smoking gun here. So we have allowed the criminal justice system to take the place of normal moral reasoning. Uh, and to say something is wrong with Donald Trump and Russia. I don't know exactly what it is. It will. I will never know. Maybe he just has a big crush on Vladimir Putin. I don't know what the problem is, uh, but we know about Donald Trump's problems. So there is a problem here. The criminal justice system can do things, um, but it cannot reason for us morally, and it cannot reach the conclusions that we want that that we need to reach on our own as citizens. And what the media coverage has done. Uh, was play too heavily into that. The Mueller report, these investigations, I mean, the whole thing, this FBI was just terrible, right? Struck and uh, what's his name? The guy who got charged for leaking to, who was the guy that got charged for leaking the, who was the number two at the FBI who got charged for leaking? Andy McCabe. 
McCabe. Uh, and of course, to say nothing of Jim Comey, the uh, second worst FBI director in history. So there was this uh, lionization glorification of these people as if somehow what they were going to come back with would be absolutely dispositive and we would finally know. And now, of course, right media is going to do that with uh, with Durham, who, though he has an awesome goatee, uh, they will treat as here will finally have proof about the Russia collusion hoax and all that stuff. And it's just we, we need to be better at moral reasoning uh, and not just rely on the criminal justice system to tell us what to think. Can can I say one one additional thing, since all I've gotten to say about this issue so far is who this guy was and that he lied, um, is that the Steele dossier, and this is something that I said in AO, and I know that there's not 100% unity and overlap in the two podcasts, so I just want the Steele... Just because Jonah's not here, I'll just point out that it's a niche legal podcast <laughs> since he's not here. I'll say, flagship. I'll say it for him. Yeah, flagship. 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 I was literally speaking that last week I was at a speech and someone yelled out host of the flagship podcast as I was uh. getting getting off the stage. So um, anyway, here in my view, here's what the Steele dossier did just in the in in a partisan sense that was so malignant in the public in the public role here. On the one hand, it provided what a lot of Democrats thought was a roadmap for what Mueller was going to prove. So here's the here's the story of Donald Trump and the clandestine this and the scandalous that, and here's what Mueller's aiming towards. And then for the, on the right, it was well, if you don't prove the dossier, then there's not a scandal. And the reality was that there was a scandal. It was a substantial scandal. Chris, as you just pointed out, there was, you know, senior Trump officials, Don Jr., Manafort, Jared Kushner, met with a Russian lawyer with the intention expressed in writing <laughs> to get information from that was derived from a Russian government help to uh, effort to help Donald Trump. That was the intention of the meeting. You had Paul Manafort providing confidential polling data to a Russian agent. I mean, these things actually happened, but a lot of people, because the Steele dossier was not proven by the Mueller report, view the whole thing as a hoax. The whole thing was an engineered political, uh, you know, a political hit. That document is one of the more malignant single documents that we've seen put into the public square. And I'm still... And I got on my hobby horse about BuzzFeed doing it. I'm still ticked that BuzzFeed did it. I mean, they put Oppo raw, they put Oppo research into the public square, even after they said, we've not been able to verify it. And then one of the ways they justified it was by saying, well, we need you to make up your own mind. How am I supposed to do that as a reader? Oh, I'm going to go to Prague and try to talk to my sources to see if Cohen met under a bridge somewhere. Are you kidding me? Um, and so you had this, this thing vomited into the public square, was a roadmap for the left and, uh, oddly enough, a roadmap for the right. And, and when, the real, when the facts didn't match the roadmap, it was people, people didn't know how, most of us didn't know how to you know, really interpret it all, but the right knew how to interpret it as a hoax and the left knew how to interpret it as some sort of gigantic letdown when the facts that were the facts were really bad all by themselves. All right, with that, we're going to call it a day, a week, 
Thank you all for joining us. And thanks you at home for your fabulous listening. You also define generalized excellence. (laughs) (laughs) We appreciate you so much. Definitely uh, rate it on, rate this podcast on wherever you're listening. And we will see you again next week. Round two, name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.